Good afternoon, everyone. I know you know that feeling when it seems as though the pastor is just talking right to you, and you get this little zing because you've received something from the word that's being spoken. You've probably all had that experience, and I have it frequently here when I listen to Sister Tanika preach and pastor. But Ronnie has um, an unbroken record with me, and he may not realize that, but virtually every time he teaches or preaches, I get zinged. And um, it's come to be uh, something I expect at this point. And um, some of you have heard me say I've certainly shared with him how one particular zing was extremely important in my life because after he preached one Sunday, um, he preached on uh, keeping the focus, keeping your eye on Jesus. And he was talking about Peter walking on the water. That afternoon after church, we went to see my father who was at that point comatose and dying and didn't know the Lord. And the Lord um, parted the waters for me such that everyone left the room and left me alone with him. Uh, there was a whole bunch, there were visitors, and they all just suddenly vanished and went downstairs, and I was left alone with my father. And, and I was so nervous, but I realized that this was the last chance I had to share the gospel with him and impress him with the love of Jesus. And, and the whole time I was just like clinging clinging for dear life to Ronnie's message. And uh, indeed, I, I'm not sure, but I have reason to believe that he uh, accepted the Lord before he died. I won't know till glory, but I've always been um, really grateful for that. So when Brother Ronnie, a few weeks back when I was leading worship, I talked about Jehovah Jireh because we were singing Because of Who You Are, and that song has a, a refrain that speaks of Jehovah Jireh, and I talked about how God um, provides. That's what Jehovah Jireh means, God provides. And he took an interest in that. You probably remember that you did. So um, I decided that that's what my message is going to be about today, and I dedicate it to my dear brother Ronnie. So for all the, the way that the Holy Spirit has used you in my life, I pray he uses me for you. Uh, but, you know, it's for you, too. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people in here today with special needs, health needs, needs having to do with grief and loss, you know, ch ch challenges in career, lots of stuff going on in this room today. I know that. So I only just always, when I begin to prepare a teaching for you, I, I specifically pray that, because I don't know what you guys need to hear, but I know he knows what you need to hear, that, that he would give me that message that's for you. So I'm going to proceed on the assumption that he's answered that prayer today. And whoever has the cell phone, good time to remind everybody to silence your phones. Not that I mind the sound uh, or anything. Just, uh. So God who provides Jehovah Jireh, what does this name teach us and tell us about the character of God? And because we're all seeking something some knowledge about how God has something for us personally, what does Jehovah Jireh mean for us personally? And if you're thinking that I might talk about material provision and having enough money, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> we're going to talk about a different kind of provision, and it's way better. It's way better. And it might actually include financial, but 
that's not what we're, where we're going. So let's first go to Merriam-Webster, my favorite dictionary. Provision is the state of being prepared beforehand. A measure taken beforehand to deal with a need. I'm going to say that again. Provision is the state of being prepared beforehand, a measure taken beforehand to deal with a need. And the word provide comes from the Latin. This is as far as we're going to go with our word roots today. Um, The Latin is providere. And pro means forward. And videre means to see. So my title for today's message is Seeing Forward. Seeing Forward. And I thought maybe we'd start by seeing and examining how God sees and how God is forward. God sees. I've just selected three little examples of that, of God seeing. In fact, in the very first chapters of Genesis during the creation, you'll notice that he says seven times in the creation account, he saw that it was good. Everything that he made for us, he saw that it was good. I mean, God could have said it another way. He thought that it was good, or he figured that it was good, or it was good. But he doesn't. He says he saw that it was good. So there's something about him seeing right there. Another example comes shortly thereafter in the story of Avram, who later becomes Abraham, and his wife Sarai, who later becomes Sarah. So before their name changes, they've been given a promise by God that they're going to have a promised son who's going to be the seed through which the whole world will be blessed. But they're waiting and waiting and nothing's happening. So Sarai suggests to her husband that she go in and take her Egyptian maid, Hagar. And as soon as Hagar conceives and becomes pregnant, Sarai starts to resent her and treat her poorly. So Hagar flees from spring of water, dejected, alone, rejected, isolated. And what happens? She has an encounter with God. And God takes care of her, gives her water, and gives her a promise that she too will have a son through whom there will be many descendants and there will be blessing in that. Here's what we read in that passage. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So not only did she see him, but he saw her. So she names that well there. She says, therefore, the well was called Be'er Lachai Roi. Be'er means well. Roi means sees me. And Lachai means the living one. So she called the place the well of the living one who sees me. Pretty cool. That's one of the first names, not the very first, but one of the first names that we have of God is El Roi, God who sees. El Roi, he sees. And now we can look at a first century New Testament example of a God who sees, uh, where we see Jesus talking about God seeing us. And that's in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, um, 
in regards to giving, praying, and fasting, he says, and your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So, for example, if you're fasting, don't do it publicly to gain accolades of men. Or if you're praying, don't do it publicly. If you're giving, don't make a big show of it. Do it secretly so actually nobody sees you because God sees you. Even though you're hiding it from everybody else, God sees you. God sees you. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So maybe we can go with that and establish that God sees. Now, it's a little different to say God is forward because forward is an adverb. and It was a little funny, but I decided to do a word search on it anyway to see if there was any relationship between the word forward and God. And lo and behold, I found the most surprising example And we won't dwell on it, but I just did want to share it with you. Ezekiel is a prophet who has a vision of heaven and God that's very similar to the vision that John had in the book of Revelation. Well, here's something that he sees. Now, it came about, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. So he's looking into heaven and seeing God. As I looked, behold, a storm wind with fire flashing and a bright light around it, and in its midst, something like glowing metal. Within it were figures resembling four living beings. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved, but each one went straight forward. Their wings were spread out above, and each went straight forward. So when you think about it, I mean, it's hard to imagine God going backwards on anything. He goes forward. And that's maybe a silly way to connect the words uh, forward and God. But we do see, if we look at what is meant by the word forward as it relates to our definition of provision, which is taking measures beforehand to provide for a need, because there's going to be a need and you take care of it by preparing beforehand, If we look at forward in that way, we can look, first of all, we can look at how God prepared, for example, the promised land for the nation Israel. He said he was going to go before them and he was going to take out all the inhabitants. And in fact, all Israel was going to have to do was just move in. He's taking care of of the enemies that are in the land. The the nation Israel can just walk in there, start tending their crops. Just go for it. Like the mint is on the pillow. Everything's been laid out and prepared in advance. Let's read from Exodus 23. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you. This is God speaking to Moses. An angel before you. I'm sending someone before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land. So God went to great lengths to prepare this land for Israel to just kind of step in and inhabit. So now that we've established that God is forward-seeing, he's seeing forward, um, let's look at how seeing forward might look from God's perspective. Because he's outside of our timeline. He's not in our space-time continuum. He's above it. And so what looks forward to us is not really necessarily forward to him. He sees it all at the same time. There's no before and after with him. 
He says in Isaiah, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So what does that mean for you and me? Um, He tells us on a more personal level that all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of those days came to be. That's from Psalm 139. So he knows the end from the beginning, and that goes for the nation Israel, and it goes for nations, and it goes for planets and everything macro, but it also goes for the tiny things, and it goes for you. He knows your needs. He sees you, and he has prepared beforehand. He has taken measures to prepare beforehand for your needs. Let's look at somebody who's a really, really excellent example of how God did that, and that would be Joseph. God looked ahead and strategically placed Joseph in a position second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And let's see how this came about. Um, Joseph was the next to youngest son of Jacob, and he was sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him. And he was brought into Egypt, and he had every kind of trial hurled at him from um, imprisonment and slavery to uh, false accusations that he molested uh, uh, Potiphar's wife, imprisonment, every kind of challenge, and being forgotten in there. So he was in prison for many, many, many years. But somehow, because the Lord was with him, Uh, he rises above all this. What happens is that the Pharaoh has two dreams, and Joseph is called upon to interpret the dreams, and he's able to do that because the Lord has gifted him with the ability to interpret dreams. And he can tell from the dreams what the dreams are saying is that there's going to be seven years of abundant crop followed by seven years of famine. So he's able to advise the Pharaoh and say, well, you know, what you really ought to do is collect and store away crops from the good years so you can have them against the lean years. Now, he's already taking measures beforehand for, to make sure that a need is cared for. Joseph's already doing that. But the Pharaoh decides, well, that Joseph himself should be that, the one who's in charge of making this a reality. So he gives him uh, leadership, second only to Pharaoh in authority in Egypt, And here's the amazing thing. Uh, During those famine years, so we have those seven years of abundance, and now we're into the famine years, his family, the brothers, and his father Jacob are starting to suffer from the famine. And they hear that there's some stuff to be bought down in Egypt, so they head on down there to see if they can get some food. And I'm going to read you this part. Um, from Genesis 45, I've, I've abridged it, which is why I'm not putting it on the board. But um, essentially, uh, when Joseph's brothers come down there, you may already know this story. They don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. He no longer looks like an Israelite. He's, he looks like an Egyptian. And they don't know who they're talking to, but he recognizes them. And finally, he reveals to to his brothers that it's him and that he forgives them. And here's what he says about that. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you 
to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you, here we hear that word before again, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. He's telling these men who threw him in a pit and sold him to traveling nomadic Ishmaelites as a slave. He's saying, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he tells them, you shall live in the land of Goshen, which is a very nice place to be in Egypt. And there I will also provide for you. Here we have this word provide again. I will provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. So God looked forward and took measures beforehand to deal with a need. He set Joseph in place. Joseph himself took measures to, beforehand to deal with a need. And you might think that that's just pertinent to Joseph and his family, but it's pertinent to every one of you because, as you know, the Messiah, our Savior, the one who's responsible for your salvation, came through the line of one of those brothers. Now, if they had perished from the famine, there would be no salvation. There would be no Jesus. So it really had eternal consequence that this took place. One day, when I come up here and teach, we're going to talk about Joseph and the similarities between him and Jesus, because that's a beautiful, beautiful teaching, uh, but not today. Um, today, I'm going to spend a little time with something that's become a fascination. I think maybe my husband's getting tired of these YouTube videos I keep <laughs> pulling up. Listen to this. It's amazing. Um, I've been just on a jag learning about something called the anthropic principle. Does anybody know what that is? Okay. Well, I'm really excited to be able to share it with you because I think it's just about the most amazing thing in the world. The anthropic principle is uh, the idea that the entire universe is finely tuned to support life on Earth. And it is a concept that leads one to believe that there is an intelligent designer who designed the universe, not a random set of accidents. So basically, let me tell you a bit about this fine-tuning. Uh, intelligent life on Earth is dependent upon conditions that arise from this. You've heard of the Big Bang? It's what they call a, a, in physics a singularity, a single event from which the universe began. And it started, the whole universe started in a tiny little smaller than an atom with the, this incredible density that exploded out and is even currently and continually expanding. So we have an expanding universe, which already tells physicists that there was a beginning. So here's the thing. There's all these um, variables that are constants. They include, for example, gravity, the rate of expansion from that singularity, um, 
What else? The mass and energy of the universe, the dark matter of the universe. There's 850 variables. And if any one of them was off by a mere hair's breadth, life on Earth would not be possible. So I'm just going to give you an example. Two examples. If the gravity constant, which is a mathematical formula for what gravity is, which I don't know what that is, but anyway, believe me, it's some mathematical formula. If it were off by a factor of 1 in 10 to the 60th power, 1 in 10 to the 60th power, life would not be possible on Earth. Now, in case you don't know how much 1 to the, or 10 to the 60th power is, it's roughly the number of seconds that have passed since time began. So there's one chance in 10 to the 60th power that if gravity were off by that small amount, we couldn't have life on Earth. Another example would be um, the rate of expansion of the universe. If it were off by one part in 10 to the 120th power, life would not be sustainable on Earth. So with these 850 constants and characteristics of the universe, laws of physics, the chances that there would be life on Earth and that things would be as they are is 1 in 10 to the 1050th power. That blows my mind. It blows everybody's mind. And even the atheists. So the atheist physicist, Sir Fred Hoyle, he doesn't believe in God. And of course, you can imagine that the atheist scientists are very, very interested in shooting down anything that points to an intelligent designer. That's really what they're aiming at. But this atheist scientist said this. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics, <laughs> as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces speaking about, worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. So this takes the whole issue of taking measures beforehand to deal with a need, which is our definition of provision, to a whole nother level. We're seeing that there is an intelligent designer, we call him God, who has gone to astronomical lengths to create a universe that if one little piece was off by that tiny little amount, which I told you, life would not be possible on Earth. In other words, the entire universe exists to support us. And he prepared that beforehand he laid it in place. When you read 
the creation accounts in the book of Genesis and the creation accounts that were written even before Genesis in the book of Job, where there's like four chapters that talk about creation in great detail, you see that this intelligent designer went to a great deal of trouble to lay things in place so that we could live. Now, I'm sure that every single one of you in here can think of an example of when something seems to have been supernaturally laid into place for you to just show up and be blessed in some way. Some so-called accident of nature or accident of coincidence or synchronistic event that just seemed to happen for your benefit. I, I, I have a, a memory that sticks in my mind. Um, and it seems small, but yet not so small. Again, it goes back to my father. So we both lived in San Francisco at this time, and I went to visit him, and we hung out, and I, for some reason, I don't remember why, I left my house key on his kitchen table. And then I said goodbye, forgot my key, and I went and did some errands. And when I got home, to my surprise, there was my dad sitting in front of my house. He had my key. Because he said to himself, when she gets home, she's not going to be able to get in her house. So I'm going to take her key and I'm going to meet her at her house. And he sat there and waited for me with my key. Now that's a good daddy. <laughs> and that's a very small example. But it really speaks to me because it touched my heart. I remember it now. This must have been 30 years ago. I remember it because it was sweet. And it was taking measures beforehand to deal with a need. It was a provision. It was an act of generosity. And it really does speak to the nature of God in your lives, in our lives, individually and collectively. Now, it's one thing to say that, that God made provision and created the universe so that we could live here. And science seems to prove that irrefutably, that there was an intelligent designer who went to a great deal of trouble to make sure that the mint was on the pillow for us. I, I, I just keep thinking of, I've never been on a cruise before, but I kind of feel like it's sort of like being on a cruise. You know, you walk in, you're going to live here for a little while. And, and there's the mint on the pillow, or maybe not, or whatever. Oh, and by the way, there's 24-hour prawns at the prawn bar. And if you, should, if you should feel like a swim, there's a swim for you. Anticipating every need. Anticipating every need. That, you know, that's also a good sign, I'm just thinking, uh, when you walk into a business. A good business anticipates your need. I didn't even know I needed that until you told me. Of course I need that. <laughs> Anticipating a need. And that's what God did. Now, did he do that just so we could live on earth? That's the, the next question. Did he do that just so we could live? Because you know what? We're living in sin. Did he do that, all that work, so that we could live in sin? Well, we have reason to believe that not only did he set up the entire universe so that we could live, 
but he set up the entire universe so that we could live and be redeemed. We read in 1 Peter, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He established the plan of redemption before he even put us here. He already established his plan of redemption. So the purpose of all this creation and all this life is not to just go live and do what is right in our own eyes, but to allow him to redeem us so that we can have this hope and this faith and share in his glory and be redeemed and cleansed from our sins. That is part of the creation plan. That is part of what he has taken measures beforehand to deal with a need. Our need is our sin. And that brings us back to our starting point of Jehovah Jireh. So we have one more Bible story to look at before we draw this to a close. And that is the one that from which Jehovah Jireh actually comes, which is Genesis 22. And that's, if you're interested in what would be called the key verse of this teaching, this is it. So, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And in this story in Genesis 22, we have a teaching illustration of God seeing forward. Let's talk just for one second. I'm just going to read you Romans 15:4 because we know that we can learn from this illustration from this where it says the apostle Paul said whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So this story and all of Old Testament Bible stories are for the purpose of giving us hope and encouragement. So we're going to look now at Abraham Now, Abraham is asked to offer up his beloved son, the one that God talked about was going to be the one through whom the multitudes would come and the promise was going to come through him. And all of a sudden, God's saying, now I want you to go sacrifice him. And you may wonder, well, I couldn't have done that or how in the world could he do that? But actually, we have a clue in Hebrews 11 about Abraham's mindset as he's going ahead with this project. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And why did he do that, or how could he bring himself to do that? Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So I guess if you've had face-to-face encounters with God like Abraham did, and God tells you one thing, and then he comes through with his promise, there's the son by a miracle, and then he tells you to sacrifice him, you might be inclined to say, I can trust this God. He must be able to raise him from the dead, otherwise he's just a total liar which I refuse to believe he's God 
So God commends Abraham for believing in him, his faith. Uh, Okay, so I'm just going to read from the scripture again. I'm not sure we need to have it up there. I'm just going to read it. So listen to this story, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit as we finish up. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And by the way, and we will worship and return to you, Abraham was speaking prophetically in the way that we understood from Hebrews just now, that he thought God could raise him from the dead because he's telling these guys that they are both going to return. So he obviously doesn't believe that Isaac's going to stay dead. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. That's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. God will provide for himself the lamb. And when you read the Hebrew, the wonderful thing about that sentence is it really literally says, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. So he's telling Abraham right there, I'm going to provide. In fact, it's going to be me. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac. We're talking about a hundred and something year old man binding a 30 year old man. So do you think Isaac was resisting very much here? No, I don't think so. He was willing and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Hine, behind him in a, a, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So let's look exactly what did God provide here. He took measures beforehand to deal with a need. Right? That's what provision means. He did that here. What did he provide? Well, if we look at the similarities between this account and the account of the crucifixion, we can get a sense of what was provided. Father Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, God the Father. 
was willing to sacrifice his son. God's son carried his cross, just as Abraham's son Isaac carried the wood. God's son carries his cross. And the, okay, I just said that. The mount that Abraham was called to was Mount Moriah. And it happens to be the very spot where Jesus was crucified. Isaac, as we discussed, 30-year-old robust young man, willingly laid down his life. In fact, so did the ram. If you've ever seen these Middle Eastern rams, they're not scrawny little creatures. They have big chest muscles. They're large. They have horns. For a ram to get caught in the thicket, you can imagine that the ram was also willing. God's son willingly laid down his life. He had the power to resist if he wanted to. He chose not to. He willingly laid his life down. In this story of Abraham and Isaac, we see a substitutionary sacrifice where Isaac was going to be the sacrifice, but instead a substitution was made and the lamb or ram was sacrificed in his place. And that is a picture of a sacrifice that's also substitutionary. Jesus gives his life so that we don't have to give ours in payment for our sin. Abraham's hand is stayed by the angel at the last moment, but not so with God. God actually turns his back on his own son and does not stay the hand of the death angel, but willingly gives his son so that we can be saved. It says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. So what has God seen forward for you and for me? He has taken measures beforehand to deal with the need that we have, which is our sin. And he's provided his grace. And his grace is sufficient. And this is so much better than a reassuring message that God is going to financially bless you. Because I don't know if God is going to financially bless you or not. But I know for certain that he has already laid in place beforehand and given provision for you to be saved if that is what you want. It is available to you. It is free. And if any of you in your hearts has any question about whether you have fully received it, now is the time to say, I can't believe what you did for me. I receive it and I accept it. I invite you, Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. You see, the atheists, when they teach Darwinism and evolution, they are teaching a view of creation which states that you are an accident, you are a result of random mutations that have no meaning whatsoever. And they will be the ones that you will be likely to hear these words. In all the huge vastness of the universe, I am just a mere speck. I am just nothing. In fact, the earth is just nothing. 
That's the way they see the world because of the way they've been taught. And guess what? We were all taught that in school. So is it any surprise that this culture doesn't think much of itself? But Christians have a different worldview, which is now beginning to be substantiated by scientific discovery of the last five or ten years having to do with the astrophysics of the universe. In fact, it's beginning to look like the entire universe was placed in position exactly for us to be saved. Not just to live, but to be saved. That's the extent of God's love for us. So I know that's a lot to think about, but I did want to just end with one tiny little dessert because now you've had dinner or lunch I should say so do I have time for dessert okay here's dessert when you see the word prepare beforehand and you think about provision you can't help but go to the 14th chapter of John so I'm just going to finish by reading verses 1 through 6 do not let your heart be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me.